Hello everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. Which brings us to this week, and while this isn't one of the big ones, you know, the gunslingers, the drawings of the threes, uh, the its and the stands of his collections, this is one that I was really looking forward to getting to, simply because of the stigma that's attached to it. Of Stephen King's published work, two novels, almost more than the rest, come up in ridicule. One is a novel that is so despised among portions of his fandom that even its author doesn't like it, which says a lot from the man who wrote from a Buick 8 and Mr. Mercedes. The novel is so disregarded that despite its 500 pages, its Wikipedia summary consists of a paltry three paragraphs. The novel, of course, is 1987's The Tommyknockers. The other novel that is equally derided, maybe even more so, is Insomnia. And I'll have a lot to say about that when I get to that, because that is one book that doesn't deserve any trash talk. But when it comes to The Tommyknockers, I was very interested in revisiting it. You know, this will make it my third reread of the book. Now, here's my history with it so far. During my first reading of it, I was still a kid and read it because I was voraciously devouring all of Stephen King's works that had been published at that point. That type of reading didn't allow for much thought. You know, it was all about the conquering of the text. Also, my critical senses weren't what they are today, so I wouldn't have known whether it was a well-written book or a poorly written one. Later, I reread it as an adult, and I don't recall having much thought about it one way or another. So here I am. The third time around, and this time I'm reading it with a very specific purpose, um, and not as a fan, but as a critic, and it made for a very interesting reread experience. What would I find within these pages that made the author disown it as much as he did? What would I discover this time that I hadn't noticed the first two times that would make me realize the reasons why it was so universally panned? What exactly was it about this book that made people laugh at it? the way that they do. Now, King has accomplished many things in his career up to this point. He's given us telekinetic prom queens, possessed St. Bernards, obsessive cars, evil houses, gunslinging knights, dimension-hopping children, pyrokinetic children, shape-shifting cosmic monsters, and more. He's dabbled in the genres of thriller, horror, adventure, fantasy, sci-fi, and played with classic horror tropes. Here, however, he fully dives in to a specific sci-fi genre, that of aliens. He's given us monsters at this point, but until now he has not given us aliens. Actual flying saucer riding aliens. This should be a big moment for King. People should be celebrating this. Stephen King writes an alien story. That's exciting news. Unfortunately, people are quick to dismiss it. By dismissing it, you also throw out the homage to classic sci-fi stories that helped shape King's career, whether it be Village of the Damned, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, or Invasions from Mars. Sorry, or Invaders from Mars. Uh, the Day of the Triffids, um, and more. I mean, the paranoia and danger of these films is present on every single page of this novel. And it's fun just to watch King play with the tropes and traits found within their stories here within a work of its own. Now, before I opened the book, what I remembered was the great imagery of the green glow, the mysterious concept of a hidden artifact discovered in the ground, and the great need to know what it is. I remembered that guard's end always filled me with loneliness and sadness. 
Are you called Stephen King's shout-outs to other works that included It, Firestarter, and The Talisman? I remember it invoking the paranoia and suspicion of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. The point is, of all the things that I remember about the Tommyknockers, I never remember it sucking. I mean, in short, people say it sucks. Does it? Let's find out together. But first, here's the shortest Wikipedia entry that I'll lay the foundation upon which I can build my analysis. While in the woods near the small town of Haven, Maine, Roberta Bobby Anderson, a writer of Wild West-themed fiction, stumbles upon a metal object that turns out to be a protrusion of a long-buried alien spacecraft. Once exposed, the spacecraft begins to release an invisible gas into the atmosphere that gradually transforms people into beings similar to the aliens who populated the ship. The transformation, or becoming, provides them with a limited form of genius, which makes them very inventive but does not provide any philosophical or ethical insights into their inventions. The spacecraft also prevents those affected by it from leaving town, provokes psychotic violence in some people, and causes the disappearance of a young boy, David Brown, whose older brother, Hilly, teleports him to a planet referred to as Altair 4 by the Havenites. The book's central character is James Eric Gardner, a poet and friend of Bobby Anderson, who goes by the nickname Gard. He's somewhat immune to the ship's effects because of the steel plate in his head, a souvenir of a teenage skiing accident. Gard is also an alcoholic and is prone to binges that result in violent outbursts followed by lengthy blackouts. As Bobby is almost totally overcome by the euphoria of becoming one with the spacecraft, Guard increasingly sees her health worsen and her sanity disappear. Seeing the transformation of the townspeople worsen, the torture and manipulation of Bobby's dog Peter, and the people being killed or worse when they pry too deeply into the strange events, Guard eventually manipulates Bobby into allowing him into the ship. After he sees that Bobby is not entirely his old friend and lover, he shoots and kills her. Before she dies, she telepathically calls the townspeople who then swarm to her place, intent on killing him. Ev Hillman, David and Hilly's grandfather, helps Gardner escape into the woods in exchange for saving David from David Brown from Altair 4. Gard enters the ship, activates it, and with the last of his life, telepathically launches it into space. This results in the eventual deaths of nearly all of the changed townspeople, but prevents the possibly disastrous consequences of the ship's influence spreading to the outside world. Very shortly afterward, members from the FBI, CIA, and the shop invade Haven and take as many of the Havenites as possible, killing nearly a quarter of the survivors and a few of the devices created by the altered people of Haven. In the last pages, David Brown is discovered safe and sound in Hilly Brown's hospital room. So here's my analysis. I'm going to break it down um, pretty much chapter by chapter, and it's sectioned off into three books, um, the first of which is titled Book One, The Ship in the Earth. Now, as King's openings go, the first few pages are pretty dry, and this opening is not one of his most dynamic. It's a rather matter-of-fact introduction to Bobby Anderson and her dog Peter, who'd been given to her from Jim Gardner, who isn't really in her life anymore. 
You know, we get a very simple walk through the woods with musings on life, on aging, on loneliness. There are great truths to it, like the sadness she feels when she looks upon her aging dog. But other than that, I'd have to say it's, pre it's pretty boring. You know, King references a time she'd been lost in the woods, and I just couldn't help but think that her being lost in the woods and then discovering the alien ship would have made for a much better opening. One thing, though, that is effective is that the text itself is dense, comprised of thick paragraphs that emulates the depth of the woods themselves. What's clear from these first few pages, the opening in general, is that King has a lot to say about the woods. And it made me realize that when you come to think about it, he hasn't really written a book about the woods before. Parts of it and the body take place in the woods, but for all of the horror... Um, mind from various settings, he hasn't explored the mysteries of the forest. On a personal level, mysterious forests are something that has always intrigued me, so regardless of the fact that his opening isn't the most captivating, his description of the woods themselves are enough of a hook for this reader to keep going. The woods are like the bottom of the ocean or the surface of another planet. Mysterious, alien, dangerous. When the woods you step into another world you surrender yourself to the fact that by stepping out of a constructed civilization, you're stepping out of safety. The woods represent the wild, the unknown, where in this case, mysteries beg to be unearthed. While it might come after pages of description of Bobby's loneliness, the buried object in the forest is a great hook. Who wouldn't be captivated by this? If discovered, who wouldn't want to excavate it? You might tell yourself that you want to have nothing to do with it. But wouldn't the need to know overpower rationality? Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse understood this and buried um, an object as a major plot point on Lost. John Locke's obsession over unearthing it, uncovering its mysteries, are clearly inspired by the Tommyknockers. Lindelof and Cuse are admittedly big King fans, so it comes as no surprise that they're able to invoke the sensations that the reader feels while reading the Tommyknockers. You know, thank God... That's such a natural and magnetic hook because King nearly derails the book with indulging in Bobby's morose self-loathing over the fact that she isn't recognized as an artist. If this was meant to paint her as self-centered, I'd compliment it. But I believe he's honestly channeling feelings of not being taken seriously in his field, which he has every right to feel. But like I said in my Misery review, when a writer spends too much time talking about being a writer... It comes across as self-indulgent. Now, right away for me, he has crafted an unsympathetic character. Now, look, I'm an educated guy. I'm not overly manly. Um, I'm pretty empathetic. Uh, and I have what I think is an open mind. But when I read about Bobby's wistful night of a career that never took off, I feel like shaking her. A house in the woods with a nice dog and a collection of published books? Sounds like a pretty nice life, if you ask me. The fact that she's sullen over what she doesn't have? makes her incredibly unlikable, at least in my book. It's like Hannah from Girls stumbled into a Stephen King book. The difference is that Lena Dunham understands that her character isn't supposed to be likable. Now, again, guys, I'm sorry. It's just, I've been thinking more and more about this, and I'm going to get into it again in the Stephen King, uh, Stephen Kingisms, where, you know, one thing that I've mentioned again and again and again is the author as protagonist. And I just find that it makes for such a static, 
character. I know that you're supposed to write about what you know, and clearly King is meant to write, right? He has tapped into something that most people are not born with. When asked why he's a writer, he says, because I don't know what else I would do. It's what he was made to do. And it's clearly on display. And clearly he has, like, what Joe Hill, his son, has said. He, Stephen King has forgotten more about writing than most people will ever know about writing. So I'm glad that he has published on writing, which is a gift to everyone that's fascinated with the writing process. And I'm glad that he's given us characters like Paul Sheldon, okay, in Misery, or later, and I'm currently reading it right now, Thad Beaumont in The Dark Half. But the difference between those two characters, or Bobby or Guard here, or Ben Mears in Salem's Lot, or Jack Torrance in The Shining, or Bill Denbro in It, or, you know, the list goes on. The difference is that with Paul Sheldon and Thad Beaumont, the story was predicated on the necessity of them being authors, all right? The plot and the characters intersected here. There's nothing about this book that screams that the two main characters, not one but two, that the two main characters had to be writers. Now, I, I just, as I was reading this, I kept thinking about Wonder Boys. Okay, I don't know if anyone has, has read um, Wonder Boys by Michael Chabon or have seen the, the Michael Douglas, Tobey Maguire, Robert Downey Jr., and Katie Holmes starring movie. Great movie. Okay, when I think about Stephen King including uh, writers in his books, I think of a scene in Wonder Boys. Okay, um, and I, it's, it's a great scene. Um, okay, so Rip Torn. Okay, I, I don't know if you guys know Rip Torn. Rip Torn, by the way, has the best name in Hollywood. Um, you might know him from. Uh, you know the Men in Black movies. You know, just he's a he has got such a great presence. One of the best voices in movies. He's this established, recognized, lauded author. People love him, right? And so he goes to the college that Michael Douglas's character is um, a professor at. And Michael Douglas had you know written a book, and now he's this self-loathing. Um, intellect who can't move on. He's trying to write. He's trying to publish. He can't do it. He's locked in the past. Um, and he, by the way, is uh, Michael Chabon plays into every trope um, and ridicules it. So the, the, the Michael Douglas character is just, he's a wretch of a human being. And it's, it's played for laughs, sympathetic laughs, but, you know, laughs nonetheless. And, and the whole, like, protagonist as writer is just ridiculed and, and mocked in, in such a loving way. But nevertheless, it's still something that is um, uh, parodied. But going back to, to Rip Torn. So here, here all of the grad students are assembled. Um, and it's like they're, they're paying tribute to this god that has come on stage. And he, he comes on and he gets into the microphone and he taps the microphone. I'm sorry if that just produced some feedback, but he doesn't, he just, he looks out at the crowd. There's this hush that falls about everyone as he leans into the microphone. And with his great rip-torn voice, he takes a deep breath and simply says, I am a writer. And there's a pause, and then everyone just breaks into this great applause as if what he said was the most profound thing that humanity has ever been given, as if he had come down from on high with two tablets etched in stone. 
I am a writer. And with those two lines or three lines, I am a writer. Wow, that's why I was not into math with those four lines. He, uh, he completely pokes holes in this type of character archetype. Um, and that's all I can think of. When I see Bobby just languishing around her house, just pining and whining and guard just falling about in, in his alcoholism and moaning and raging against the dying of the light, I just think of Rip Torn leaning into the microphone and saying, I am a writer and having it be profound. There's no profundity. Is that a word? I'm not a writer. <laughs> but it's not profound. To me, it's, it's, it makes for passive characters. It's indulgent. And it's a Stephen Kingism that I, I hope that what's clear is that in these reviews, I come down in favor of Stephen King. I, you know, I think, you know, some people have asked me, do you think that Stephen King has ever listened to this podcast? I, I don't think that he has. And one, um, one listener wrote an email saying, you know, what, what would you talk about with Stephen King if he had ever listened? You know, what do you think he would say? I think that Stephen King would tell me to get a life, to be perfectly honest. Um, so I'm, I'm always conscientious, though, that if he was listening... Uh, you know, I, I don't want to say I pull my punches, but I want to be respectful here. I mean, I this is a podcast that is built upon the foundation of another man's work. So even though I have issues, um, I, I do hope that it's clear that despite any issues I have, I think the man um, is a tour de force and has given more than he's taken. Um, and this is just one aspect. I just want to clarify that this is just, it's one aspect that I think that he relied a little bit too much on. And this particular instance with Bobby and Guard, I'm going to get into this in a lot more detail. But this specific kind of self-loathing author, um, I think, speaks a lot to what was occurring um, around the time of publication in 1987. But, um, again... Uh, the the writers as a character talk about writing it really in books it's the only art where it can happen I mean painters can't really paint about painting uh, actors can't really act about acting I mean I guess that you could have an actor you know get on stage and do performance you know experimental theater where they're contorting their bodies and saying it's the acting process but even if they vocalize it and start to put into words they're structuring a narrative which is a storytelling aspect of writers. Musicians can't really make music about music. You know, I mean, you could write a piece about what music means, but the music itself would speak for the music. It would be more of the music inspiring a piece about music than a piece of music being written about music. Does that make sense? But with writing, you can pretty much do anything, right? You know, I mean, your, your, your imagination is an unlimited special effects budget. You can do anything, you know? And so writing about writing and writing about writers is actually limiting your story or your imagination and certainly the imagination of the readers. So like I said, like I said, I think that there are uh, exceptions. Um, 
I say that misery can't work unless Paul is an author, and same thing with the Dark Half. But um, a story about magic spaceship that grants you superpowers, it doesn't need not just one, but two self-absorbed writer characters as the main characters. Um, now, I, I know that, you know, I'm, I'm, I just went off on a pretty large tangent there. Uh, and I know that King provides a counter-argument. Um, Guard shakes Bobby at one point as she thinks about it. And, um, you know, he tells her to stop sniveling. But to me, it's, 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 it's like putting a Band-Aid on leprosy. Um, it's a false fix. It's just cosmetic. It does not take away from the fact that our first meeting with her, this is how she appeared. You know, on a positive note, N, uh, King ends the section with Bobby having a dream about her teeth falling out, uh, which is, if you've experienced it, you'll know that it's a pretty awful dream to have. Uh, and with what winds up happening later in the novel, the whole teeth falling out of your head, it's just a really great way to show the vulnerability and the dehumanization of what's occurring within the, the townsfolk. Chapter 2, Anderson Diggs. By page 36, it's hypothesized by our main character that the buried object is a flying saucer. On page 37, King unknowingly delivers one hell of an image. In the, sp in the span of two back-to-back -back sentences, he again not for the first time, but again describes her heavy menstrual flow and follows it up with a description of a dinner of baked beans and knockwurst. Yum! I'm not saying that he shouldn't describe menstrual flows, heavy or otherwise, or what Bobby eats for dinner. What I am saying is that maybe he should be a little more careful in the spacing of the words menstrual flow, baked beans, and knockwurst. Okay, so... I probably should say at this point that this book, more than the others, is probably where the joke of King's wordliness, I'm sorry, wordiness came about. Though it and the stand were long, there's very few portions that I would call extraneous. Here, however, we go almost 50 pages before Bobby encounters another human being. The rest of the time is spent with her thinking about the object, descriptions of her menstruation, pining about Jim, thinking about the writing career she doesn't have. It's pretty brutal. Fifty pages in, Bobby takes Peter to the vet where all hell breaks loose. The buried ship is having a major effect on our characters. On page 58, Bobby again thinks of Jim Gardner, and King notes that this character happens to have a steel plate in his head. That knowledge is a seed that will later grow as a major plot point. And it's buried in what's pretty effective scene in which King masterfully describes a summer thunderstorm that knocks out her power. And while sitting alone in the dark with Peter, Bobby realizes that his cataract is now glowing with unearthly green light. It's very effective. A great scene. Chapter 4, The Dig, continued. Now, not much occurs here. She puts together the fact that the vet hadn't seen the green glow of Peter's cataract because the green glow hadn't wanted to be seen. And when she returns to the site, she discovers the dead bodies of woodland animals. Yet she continues. What's interesting to note is that I don't think the reader ever blames her for continuing to dig. King does a good job at referencing someone's desire to smoke cigarettes, knowing that it can give you cancer. Similarly, she continues to go to the dig even though it's causing a physical reaction within her, has de-aged her dog, as now carpeting the woodland floor with the bodies of dead animals. Chapter 5 Gardner takes a fall. Here we're introduced to our other main character, the oft-referred to Jim Gardner, 
who carries on the Stephen King trope of addiction and writer as protagonist. Jim, who had been propped up in our minds as the other half of Bobby Anderson, is revealed to be a struggling alcoholic and brilliant but underappreciated poet. As I stated earlier, and I don't need to get into it here, having not one but two underappreciated writers as our co-leads makes this book nearly insufferable at times. And keep in mind that it's page 70 and we're only now getting to know our next character. This is really the second character we've met in the book. I don't count Dr. Etheridge the vet because his inclusion is so brief it almost doesn't matter and is swallowed by the thick chunks of text belonging to Bobby's musing about love, life, writing, and her beagles de-aging. Within those large chunks of introspective texts, King is still able to capture beautiful moments, don't get me wrong, whether it's the recreation of a summer thunderstorm or here with Guard, remembering a specific night with Bobby. He remembered waking up once, listening to the wind, thinking of all the dark and rushing cold outside and all the warmth of this bed filled with their peaceful heat under two quilts and wishing it could be like this forever. Only nothing ever was. He had been raised to believe God was love, but you had to wonder how loving a God could be when he made men and women smart enough to land on the moon but stupid enough to have to learn there was no such thing as forever over and over again. Man, now, this excerpt sticks out to me because of the quiet beauty of the memory of the two of them together, but more so because of how the novel ends, specifically with Guard piloting the alien ship alone, driving it into the stars. Whenever I look back on the Tommyknockers, my mind always first goes to the ending. It stuck with me when I first read it. it made me sad, like deeply sad. Imagining Guard having to leave the planet, piloting the ship into the cold depths of space, his body encased in a silver tomb that will never be visited, his life never remembered, no evidence really of him ever existing, him really being only remembered among a community of intellectuals as a drunk, the only person that ever loved him he had to kill. <laughs> so when I read this scene... And the outside is described as the dark and rushing cold. That, to me, speaks of the indifferent galaxy that swirls around our planet, from which crash the alien ship that first threatens and ultimately destroys the peaceful heat of community, relationships, and love. I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge moments like this, because there are still moments in this laborious novel where King's truth still shine. However, we can't ignore that chapter 5 is over 50 pages detailing Guard's alcoholism, his poetry readings, and his rantings on nukes. While I think that we can all agree that there's nothing more thrilling than poetry readings, it does not add much to the story. And with the whole nuke thing, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if King envisions Guard as the voice of rationality in a growing irrational world, but he comes off like that guy. You know, and while I believe that on some level... Gardner's antics at the party are meant to portray him as a miserable drunk. I, I just can't help but see a little bit of King's own viewpoints coming in through here. You know, in this scene, I, I read Gard as an avatar for King himself, saying the things he's always wanted to say, getting revenge on the high-minded college people. You know, despite the unfavorable attacks by Gard, Gard's lecture on nuclear power is unintentionally sanctimonious. Chapter 6 Gardner on the Rocks. 
In the previous chapter, King channeled a lot of his anger into the character of Guard, as well as the sensations of getting drunk. Here, he describes in detail the effects of an apocalyptic hangover. Guard contemplates suicide, but has the deep sensation of Bobby needing him. I don't know. I, I just, I think that the thing, I don't want to talk about that, because the thing that I really want to, I want to talk about right now is the reappearance of Jack Sawyer, the star of The Talisman. And this is more than just the Stephen King reference, of which this novel has many, by the way. This is a solid cameo, which reminds me more of what King will later go on to do with the return of Richie Tozier and Beverly Marsh in 1122-63. King builds an entire chapter around Jack. I mean, Guard could have woken up on any beach, but he didn't. He woke up on Arcadia Beach. Not only does he wake up on Arcadia Beach, he references the Arcadia Fun World Amusement Park, which we know is maintained by the otherworldly Speedy Parker. By revisiting such a notable setting from a fan-favorite novel, King purposefully teases the reader. We have our memories of the place, and when we think of Arcadia, we clearly think of Jack. So when Guard wakes up on the beach, and King writes, a kid in jeans and a t-shirt set off a string of firecrackers, the fanboy in us all pumps our fist in glee. And while it might be the 4th of July, those fireworks are not going off because of our nation's independence, but because we're celebrating the return of traveling Jack Sawyer. It's a quick scene, but for fans of the Talisman, it's so much fun. It's no coincidence that while in the presence of Jack, that guard is able to pull himself together enough to call Bobby. Call it the power of the white. Now, I, I haven't read Black House, uh, the sequel to The Talisman, in quite a while, so I'm not sure if Lily's death by car crash matches up with what King and Straub will present later. Chapter 7, Gardner Arrives. While this novel stars a couple of self-centered intellectuals who can't get out of their own way, this scene includes an example of King's most inherent characteristic, the genuine kindness of mankind. As I've stated before in the podcast episodes, we see characters overcome the terrors present in his works when they are able to rely on those around them. Ben Mears and Mark Petrie from Salem's Lot, Dennis and Lee from Christine, everyone from The Stand, The Losers and It, the list goes on and on, and manifests itself in different ways. Novels where there's division among the characters, or characters acting selfishly, result with heartbreak. Cujo is an example. Uh, the Gunslinger and, and, and Thinner are others. Now, here we have Guard propped up by a traveling bar band who rallies around him and recognizing that he's in danger, provides what money they can and a good luck kiss goodbye. Between this and a scene with Jack, it's as if the universe is telling Guard that he's redeemable, that it believes in him, that he's worthwhile. For an alcoholic or an addict, that's an incredibly powerful message. So while many of his characters in the book may either wallow in self-pity or become undone by their addiction to the power of a spacecraft, King presents hope to the addict as if he is projecting hope for himself. And I'm going to get into that in, in a lot more detail um, at the conclusion of the review, specifically um, just a, a larger discussion on addiction, because as we all know, Stephen King was going through a lot um, at this particular time, but um, I just, I want to read one, well, I'll get to that later, like I said, but I just want to read something on page 136 of the paperback edition. Um, we get just a description. After he's hiking through the rain, uh, we get clear skies, um, and the world presents Guard with another guidepost to his redemption, with just another 
beautiful scene. Um, so I know, listen, it's it's been 32 minutes. The 32 minutes that I've spent on reviewing this have not been entirely complimentary. Um, but, I mean, e- even though it, it the book at times can go on and on and on, you can't deny the power of the storytelling um, and just the descriptions. So King writes, he stopped looking at the sunlight as it spilled across rolling miles of wet woods and hayfields in the west, the rays beaming down like the dramatic sun rays in a DeMille Bible epic. DeMille Bible epic, sorry. Route 9 began to rise here, and the western view was long and gorgeous and solemn, the evening's light somehow English and pastoral in its clear beauty. The rain had given the landscape a sleek, washed look, deepening colors, seeming to fulfill the texture of things. Gardner was suddenly very glad he had not committed suicide, not in any corny art link letter way, but because he had been allowed this moment of beauty and perceptual glow. Standing here, now almost at the end of his energy, feverish and sick, he felt a child's simple wonder. All was still and silent in the final sunshine of evening. He could see no sign of industry or technology. Humanity, yes. A big red barn attached to a white farmhouse, sheds, a trailer too. But that was all. The light. It was the light that struck him so strongly. Its sweet clarity, so old and deep, those rays of sun slanting almost horizontally through the unraveling clouds as this long, confusing, exhausting day neared its end. That ancient light seemed to deny time itself. And Gardner almost expected to hear a huntsman winding his horn, announcing all assemble. He would hear dogs and horses' hooves. and So it goes on there, but think about the moment of beauty that he has when he comes to Haven, all right? And that's an example of what Haven is, right? Haven is just one letter away from heaven. Um, and the light that comes down, the pure gold light of nature, is going to stand in stark contrast to that green alien light of the Tommyknockers. Um, so I just, I needed to read that. Guard reaches Bobby, and we see her through another's eyes. Now, while I might have criticized the time spent with Bobby in the beginning, it does pay off here, maybe not entirely to justify the amount of time that we spent with her, but there is a payoff nonetheless. With the first few chapters told through her perspective, she existed as an unreliable narrator. We may have been aware of the dangers of the dig, but here, through the eyes of Guard, we clearly see the dangers of the dig as the air feels poisoned and Bobby looks like a walking skeleton. Chapter 8, Modifications. Now again, whatever criticisms I lobbed at the self-indulgence of writer characters earlier, it's clear that King has established a very, very tangible relationship with our two characters, whether it's the call and answer of Bobby and Guard or their brief reunion before Bobby passes out. There's a connection between the two of them that's unarguable. While Bobby sleeps, Guard exits the house and discovers the Tommyknockers-inspired gadgetry that includes balls of light and invisible force fields. When it comes to all the crazy inventions from the spacecraft, the logic doesn't entirely hold up, but it's fun as hell. This is clearly a case where you have to suspend disbelief. It'd be one thing if Bobby and later the townsfolk were chipping away pieces of the craft and these pieces infused with so much alien radioactive power allows for the creation of these crazy inventions. But that's not what happens. 
Somehow the spaceship infuses the people with power that allows them to use the batteries and wires to create alien technology that is then empowered by the energy that has transferred from the spacecraft to the inventions with the humans as a living conduit. It's a weird conceit and it's fun. Again, this novel is oftentimes slammed by critics and I have done my slamming, but I'm over it, okay? Because from this point forward, it's pretty much all complimentary because the, the, the townsfolk as walking human batteries for dormant alien power, that's right up my alley. The inventions themselves, and more specifically, the power that fuels them is a metaphor for nuclear power, which was a hot topic upon publication and evidenced by Gard's earlier diatribe. When keeping that in mind, the townspeople resemble, resemble survivors undergoing radiation poisoning and their carelessness in playing with technology that they don't understand is a clear condemnation on the part of kings towards the creation of nuclear-powered plants and the lawmakers who support them. He might have dragged out the beginning of the novel with introspective character portraits, but once Guard gets to Bobby's home, he doesn't waste any time revealing how crazy this novel is going to get. We get the miniature sun in the water heater, the personalized doorbell chimes, and most absurdly, the flying tractor. I say absurd but with the fact that it's also really awesome. Chapter 9, Anderson Spins a Tale. Now awake, Bobby and Guard are able to catch up. There's a tragedy present with these two characters, these two broken souls who can only find solace with one another, but even that isn't enough. When you look at these two from beginning to end, their story is really, really sad. Probably the saddest romance that King has crafted so far. Wendy and Jack's marriage from The Shining was already on the rocks. You know, um, Jack's death um, in, in that book, though awful for the family, was almost a blessing. You know, Donna and Vic Trenton aren't doing so hot in Cujo, um, and their, their, their marriage never really resonated with me. Uh, neither of the characters coming across as very sympathetic, Vic worrying too much about a stupid commercial and Donna having her affair, but... Maybe because we spent so much time with each character before they got together, we see how much they mean to each other. They're two halves of a broken soul. Now, maybe it's a little codependent and maybe not entirely healthy, but they honestly love each other, whether it's as friends or as more, and it's doomed from the start. With the revelation that Peter has died, um, uh, let me rephrase that, but um, when Bobby tells Guard that Peter has died, she says it without inhumanity. We've seen how much she loves that dog. One of the first bits of emotion from the book comes from the sadness that came from the fact that Peter was aging and the knowledge that she would one day, sooner than she'd like, have to deal with his death. The fact that she doesn't emote goes to show how much of humanity the spaceship has robbed of her. And in its place has been filled with the power of the Tommyknockers, which includes mind reading. Through the typewriter, Guard and Bobby have a silent conversation which really hammers home Bobby's de-evolution. Chapter 10, Gardner Decides. Gard approaches the dig, and the time spent away from Bobby shows that she's been busy unearthing what isn't just a spaceship, but a bona fide classic flying saucer. I'm glad that King goes with the classic image because there's so many connotations that come with it. And the classical nature of the spaceship as a silver flying disc is my go-to version of alien spacecrafts. Guard makes the decision to touch the thing, and he probably only does so because of his love of Bobby, because touching it is clearly an insane thing to do at this point, but it has an unintended effect, which isn't much of a surprise if you think about the time that King has spent on telling and reminding us of the steel plate in Guard's head. 
When the steel plate blocks whatever transformative property the flying saucer projects, we discover that Bobby hasn't just been affected, but she's actively working for the Tommyknockers and has dangerous motives. Bobby is fully willing to blow Guard's head off if he chooses wrong. And he does choose wrong, though it means his life is spared. He chooses to stay. Book 2, Tales of Haven, Chapter 1, The Town. King spends the first ten pages of Book 2 establishing the history of the town, of its many name changes, and sets the stage for how its citizens are likely to surrender themselves to charlatans and false prophets, foreshadowing the frenzy with which they will soon find themselves. What King does in Book 2 plays like an extended version of what he did in Salem's Lot, to which he dedicated chapters of examining the characters who live there in order to show the destruction of the town once the vampire threat spread throughout it. Chapter 2, Becca Paulson. With Becca, King shows us the effects of the saucer upon the citizens of Haven. Here, the saucer does not impress itself upon the characters with cold objectivity, but with King's trademark villainy, manipulative, cartoonish, charismatic. Likewise, Pennywise before and the Crimson King later, the Tommyknockers shapeshift in order to best manipulate their victims. With Becca, it's a gossipy Jesus Christ. We spend this chapter learning of her husband's affair, his mistress, um, and her own inventions, his newfound ability to predict the winners of the upcoming games, which all goes to show the creepy malignancy of the flying saucer. What its purpose isn't really clear at this point. If it was in control, it probably wouldn't set the people against each other. What do the Tommyknockers have to gain from that? King will take this basic concept, an unnatural catalyst, extra, sorry, extraterrestrial here, supernatural later, pitting citizens against citizens in the last Castle Rock story, Needful Things. Chapter 3, Hilly Brown. I said earlier that when I think of the Tommyknockers, I immediately think of the lonely fate of Jim Gardner. The thing that pops up next is the disappearance of David Brown. It's a great plot point that reminds me of the jaunt. You'd think that being transported to another world, asteroid, or dimension, whatever Altair 4 is, would result in instant death, but Hilly survives. Or David survives. If he didn't, what fate would have he had? The possibilities are chilling, and everything has to do with the Browns' work wonderfully. I want to note that King has also been seeding in little hooks to keep us reading. Little loaded Chekhov's guns that hint at future plot developments. Whether... It's when King stated that the poetry reading would be guards last, or here, when King announced that in one week the Haven Town Hall would blow up, King fleshes out events on a timeline that race towards what looks to be an increasingly catastrophic conclusion. As for Hilly himself, to whom this chapter is dedicated, man, what a great character. He brings so much needed lightness to what's been, despite its insanity, a pretty heavy book that has included threat of nuclear fallout, depression, suicide, and wives being shot in the face. Hilly is a character I wish we spent more time with. A wide-eyed boy genius whose every action seemed to cause suffering in those around him, you know, with him completely oblivious. It's such a good scene, full attention. It comes down to the fact that, at the end of the day, King knows how to write kids. When he chooses to focus his perspective through the eyes of a child, he nails it every single time. And here is no different. It'd be a wonderful chapter to read even without the disappearance of David Brown. David's disappearance is certainly a gut punch and one of the book's most memorable scenes, but Hilly's characterization leading up to that moment really make that chapter shine. Chapter 4, Bent and Jingles. Like I said earlier, King keeps teasing events yet to come, and with this chapter, he jumps ahead by a week. 
With our two new characters, Officers Bent and Jingles, we're treated to their reactions from a catastrophe that includes an explosion, a steeple, and body parts. We then work backwards the explosion so we get an idea of what has occurred. As King puts the pieces together, the slowly revealing picture is enough to disturb us. The images of the doll's limbs scattered about the town while the citizens of Haven go about their business is chilling, and we get the sense of the town's rapid de-evolution from the flying saucer. Chapter 5. Ruth McCausland. King spends almost 20 pages building up this character so her death is that much more painful. While 20 pages may be a bit extraneous, it works, nevertheless. Ruth is described as the heart of the town, so her death is necessary to show the corruption of the town itself. We get to see the physical deterioration of the townspeople as we watch Ruth foolishly but admirably stick to her guns and combat the possession. I mentioned the village of the damned earlier, and this scene feels very reminiscent of that, especially when Ruth tries blocking her thoughts from the Tommyknockers. Chapter 6. Ruth McCausland Concluded The chapter concludes from the last, and we see that Ruth has waited too long to leave. She's now blocked by an invisible membrane that won't let her leave. Chapter 7. Uh, Beach Jernigan and Dick Allison. Now, this is a plot point that kind of confuses me. Uh, it... They have to rush to doctor a photograph for what purpose? It's not clear to me, and granted, I I didn't read the section with 100% attention, but it still seemed like a forced conflict. Um, what, they're, they're going to project an image of the steeple so people think that it's still there? Is that what I'm supposed to believe? But the funny thing is that in 2015, the tension around whether or not they'll be able to doctor the photo, it's rendered pretty moot. You know, in a Photoshop world, it's just not that big a deal. Chapter 8, Ev Hillman. Here we check in with Ev, who's found safety in Derry. And when Derry is the safest place you can find, you know you're in trouble. Ev takes on a history lesson of the bad luck that has cursed the woods as far back as he can remember. It's a nice touch and one that has a foot in the real world. There are forests throughout the world that have inexplicably high numbers of people getting lost and accidents occurring. There's a forest in Canada, I believe, where just people just go missing if, if they go down a particular road. And then there's the suicide forest in Japan. I'm going to read that again. There's the suicide forest in Japan. About 100 suicides occur in that forest every year, and there are signs warning people not to enter. Okay, that's pretty creepy. Okay, and that's not a made-up story. That's an our world. So King just builds an original story around you know th this this concept of spooky, mysterious forests. Chapter nine: The funeral. It's the last stand of Ev Hillman and Butch, who discover the ship and are overtaken by Bobby and her posse. Throughout the chapter, we check in with Guard, who has dived into the deep end of a bottle and takes comfort in knowing he'll drown rather than eaten alive from the monstrous sharks of the Tommyknockers. Chapter 10, A Book of Days, The Town Concluded. Here we get a good sense of the mind-reading sensation um, on page 471. You know, the effect of the ship upon the townspeople and the sensation of becoming. So on 471, King writes, Andy Bozeman, who had been Haven's only realtor up until three weeks ago when he simply closed his office, had discovered that mind reading was something a fellow had gotten used to very quickly. He didn't realize how quickly or how much he had come to depend on it until it was his turn to go out to Bobby's place to help to keep an eye on the drunk. 
Part of his problem, he knew, was that it was going to be a problem after talking to Enders and the Tremain lad, was being this close to the ship. It was like standing next to the biggest power generator in the world. Constant eddies and flow of its weird force ran over his skin like swirling sand devils in the, in the desert. Sometimes large ideas would float dreamily into his mind, making it impossible to concentrate on what he was doing. Sometimes the exact opposite would occur. Thought would break up completely, like a microwave transmission interrupted by a burst of ultraviolet rays. But most of it was just the physical fact of that ship looming there, like something out of a dream. It was exhilarating, awe-inspiring, frightening, wonderful. Bozeman thought he now understood how the Israelites must have felt carrying the Ark of the Covenant through the desert. In one of his sermons, the Reverend Goodhinger said that some fellow had ventured to stick his head in there just to see what all the shouting was about and had dropped dead on the spot because it had been God in there. There might be a kind of God in that ship too, Andy thought. And even if that God had fled, it had left some residue, some of itself, and thinking about it made it hard to keep your mind on the business at hand. We're given a good sense of the scale of the excavation of the spaceship from that point forward, which couldn't be replicated in the otherwise pretty faithful TV movie adaptation as far as I remember. Bobby returns in this section looking less human than before, but King makes it clear that she still retains some of her humanity. Regardless, we learn that the physical transformation involves the dissolution of the human body's bones and the increasing translucence of the skin. Guard also learns that he isn't immune to becoming, just that it would take longer. And the section includes a cameo from Derry's most famous citizen, Pennywise the Dancing Clown himself. When a Haven resident goes to Derry to procure more batteries, he believes he's hallucinating when he sees a clown in the sewer grate clutching a handful of balloons. Book 3, The Tommyknockers. Chapter 1, Sissy. For the opening of the final book, King decides to introduce the oft-referred-to Anne, sister of Bobby, who's one of those broad, larger-than-life alpha males, who in this case happens to be a female, the type of angry, forceful caricatures you hope don't really exist in this world, but who probably does. We've seen this character before with Morgan Sloat, Tom Rogan, and Will again in the very similar novel Under the Dome with Big Jim Rennie. Anne Anderson is so cartoonishly over-the-top, it brings some humor to the novel, which until this point gets weighed down with Guard's self-pity and Bobby's de-evolution. Anne is so horrible, you can't wait for her to drive to Haven so we can see what Bobby has in store for her. When Anne arrives in town, we get to see how poisonous Haven has become. She becomes immediately ill, then proceeds to nearly pass out for the entire day, which spans in hours, um, and it passes in what feels like minutes. When she arrives at Bobby's place, we're introduced to the new Bobby, complete with transparent skin and tentacles growing from where no tentacles should ever grow. It's a startling and disgusting image, but nevertheless a memorable and potent one. Chapter 2, Gardner Takes a Walk. It's a short chapter that establishes that Gard is at the point of no return. He either gives into the becoming or does something about it. Chapter 3, The Hatch. As the chapter suggests, they reach the hull, which presents the end game for the novel. Chapter 4, The Shed. More so than The Hatch, The Shed has been the biggest mystery, and it's here where Gard finally decides to enter. King teases the moment when Gard enters, and when he does, ah, oh, it's horrifying. 
Peter, the beagle, Ev, and Anne are all suspended in a state of living death, human batteries that aren't allowed to die. Now, Peter is the key to this scene. King meticulously details the love of that dog, allowed us to impart our own memories of the cherished dogs of our lives onto him just to make this scene work. While Bobby has been passing as a human being despite her growing inhumanity, it's clear that she's nothing but subhuman. And this is the galvanizing catalyst that drives guard into action. The real tension doesn't come from what's in the shed, but when Bobby returns and Guard realizes that he's forgotten to place the padlock back where it belongs. It's such a good example of King demonstrating his storytelling prowess. It would have been tense enough watching Guard struggle with acting civilly around them, you know, knowing what he knows, but this extra bit adds so much more tension than you could believe. Chapter 5, The Scoop. This is a chapter that could have been removed and the story could move on without a glitch. It's just, an, it's just another example of a non-Haven resident attempting to get into Haven and finding it poisonous. Chapter 6, Inside the Ship. Like the chapter title suggests, it's all about Bobby and Guard heading into the ship. They find the bodies of the Tommyknockers and King reveals that the ship crashed due to infighting, suggesting parallels between the aliens and ourselves. doesn't matter that they came from beyond the stars. In so many ways, they're just like us. Chapter 7, The Scoop, Continued. The reporter investigates Haven and is quickly killed by a flying coke vending machine. It's probably the only sentence I need to read that describes the lunacy of this novel. I'm going to read it again. The reporter investigates Haven and is quickly killed by a flying coke vending machine. Chapter 8, Guard and Bobby. With just about 100 pages to go, an excavated spaceship, a poisoned town, possessed citizens, and a dying hero, all bets are off. So when Guard fear, fears for his life around Bobby, we have every reason to believe him. It's the final confrontation between our two main characters who started out at each other's love, but have ended as not just enemies, but members of a different species. And here, in a furious argument, Guard unleashes his wrath upon her, um, pointing out her faults. And with the following excerpt, King again hammers home the dangers of humanity playing with toys it can't understand, whether it be fire, guns, nukes, or alien technology, which can be found um, from four, I'm sorry, 642 to 643. Nobody thought of it, he said. Right. So you sent those two kids, all ready to do or die for good old Haven, and now one of them is dead and the other one's blind. I don't care who or what has taken you over. Part of you has to be inside someplace. Part of you has to realize that you people haven't been doing anything creative at all. Quite the opposite. You've been taking dumb pills and congratulating each other on how wonderful it all is. I was the crazy one. I kept telling myself it would be okay even when after I knew better. But it's the same old it always was. You can disintegrate people. You can teleport them to someplace for safekeeping or burial or whatever. But you're dumb as a baby with a loaded pistol. Bobby doesn't do a great job at justifying their possession or their use of technology, describing the Tommyknockers of which she now considers herself to be as builders, not thinkers. That they simply build these gadgets, which include a teleporter without knowing where the other side might lead. She brings up a point that I never considered, which is why bother with a flying saucer when you can just teleport? 
Well, there's only so many channels of teleportation destinations, and none of them pleasant. Entire civilizations have died because of the Tommyknocker's carelessness, including something called Shatter Day. Bobby explains that the Tommyknockers are like children, childlike. She justifies their actions as being fated and suggests they are one with God. Their actions, therefore, are righteous, free of blame. In this concluding scene, the Tommyknockers are just like any other zealous ideology who kills in the name of a higher power. It ends with Guard fighting the pills and raising the gun only to discover it's misfired. This is unbelievably tense. Chapter 9, The Scoop Concluded. This is where people stop actively ignoring the occurrences in Haven, and this is where King channels his own inner fanboy by reintroducing an agency that has just as much of an introduction in this book as Jack Sawyer did, and that is the antagonist of Firestarter, The Shop. Meanwhile, we're given a different perspective of civilians watching the flying saucer rise out of the smoke and flame, and it's an awesome image. Chapter 10, Tommyknockers Knocking at the Door. Bobby and Guard have their ugly end in which Bobby is first set on fire then put out of her misery with a gunshot. Guard, who is now poisoned with Valium and suffering from a shattered ankle, is tasked with saving the day. With Bobby dead, it's a race against time and Guard has to save David, destroy the shed, and make it to the ship before the townsfolk get to him. It's a manic ending that includes a death ray umbrella and the return of the flying tractor. I could talk more about it, but it just kind of needs to be experienced. Guard gets the ship, uses it to suck the energy from all the Tommyknockers to power it, and sends it to the stars. And the book ends with a with as distinct a memory of I have of any of King's books. Like I said earlier, the the lonely death of Jim Gardner, who dies alone in the cold depths of space while envisioning a reunion with Bobby and Peter. It's just, it's really hard to read. So with, with the book itself, with my running thoughts on the book, two things really came to mind. The first of which um, is what I, I, I kind of alluded to earlier, um, and that's addiction. Uh, and I'll, I'll address it again in Stephen King's sense, but I'm going to go into a lot more detail in this particular section. But I need here to point out that this comes, this book, Tommy Knockers, it comes about at a time when King's alcoholism and drug abuse was at its worst. Now, as you know, or maybe you don't, um, if you don't, I mean, since the publication of Carrie, King's addictions grew and grew, culminating to a point when his family found him unconscious, covered in blood, and believed he was dead. They stage an intervention, and he's been clean ever since. Now, Needful Things will be the first novel he publishes sober. I don't know exactly where that leaves the dark half, if he was writing that simultaneously with the Tommyknockers. You know, I know that King often writes sections at a time concurrently with other works, as in the case here with the Tommyknockers, which was written over a five-year span. I mean, the man is prolific enough to publish multiple novels a year, so it's not hard to believe that he wrote the dark half before he went sober. Now, the reason I say this is because King considers Tommyknockers his worst book. And if that means that he believes his overconsumption of booze and drugs played a part, then signals one of the last novels he wrote while under the influence. Examining the Tommyknockers with this in mind, we see addiction woven into the very fabric of the story itself. In Dreamcatcher, King will write 
Well, looks on the surface to be a very similar story of a crashed spaceship in a small town in the woods, but these two stories differ greatly because at the core, Dreamcatcher isn't much about anything else but aliens, while this is never about anything else other than addiction. While it may involve unearthing a hidden spacecraft, it's really about the pull of the spacecraft that it has on the townsfolk and the addiction that follows. The spaceship it's the ultimate drug that at first gets you high, makes you feel superhuman, but eventually drives you away from your family and friends and robs you of your humanity. By the end of the novel, the townsfolk of Haven aren't enlightened superhumans. They're rotting junkies in need of more and more of their drug. They can't live without it. Going, told, sorry, going cold turkey isn't even an option for them. It's just going to kill them. They're too far gone. The conclusion of the novel involves Bobby pointing a gun at Guard's head, forcing him to OD on pills. I never thought of that in context of King's real-life demons. So this time around, it made me shudder at how close we came to reading a newspaper headline announcing the death of this great author. How can this not be interpreted as a cry for help? Our main character is forced at gunpoint to swallow handfuls of Valium or die a slow, painful death on an alien landscape. That is as bleak a moment that I've ever read in any Stephen King book. The fact that Guard does die in the end, surrounded by darkness while dreaming of memories that never were, serve as a dark suicide fantasy, or at least a dark future that was increasingly becoming a distinct possibility. I think if King had died, people would talk about the Tommyknockers much differently than they do now. It wouldn't be the object of ridicule, but a portentous window into the mind of a troubled author. And in addition, among his collections, his fans would point out to as his cry for help. It gives his dedication to Tabitha that much more poignancy. It's as if when he writes to her in the beginning of the book promises to keep, he's promising that he will not meet Guard's lonely end. So I kind of dumped all over the book at the beginning. I think that you know by the end of this review, I think it's kind of clear that I enjoyed it very, very much. Um, I, I think that it was a slow, self-indulgent start. But at its core, with it being about addiction, it's really speaking, I think, about King at that particular time in his life. I'm glad, so glad, that things worked out, that he survived his own addictions. He survived the car crash. He demonstrated a strength that most of us don't have um, and came through, uh, you know, still as prolific um, and still as creative as he was while he was on drugs, while he, uh, you know, before, he, before the car crash. In fact, I'd argue that the books that he writes while he's clean are more imaginative um, than the ones uh, while he was on drugs. Now, I think that this is a novel about addiction and dependency, but he also makes some other arguments here. You know, clearly, um, the Tommyknockers uh, is a metaphor for nuclear power um, and the, the dangers of, of nuclear power and what can happen. But it's also, he's speaking about religion. Um, you know, I mean, he's not only examining addiction, uh, he's, and it's not, actually, it's, it's not necessarily an exploration of religion, it's a critique. Um, not necessarily of, of religion itself, but the blind devotion to religion. 
Just over 200 pages in, King introduces us to Becca Paulson, the wife of Joe Paulson, who is currently sleeping with Nancy. Now, with Becca, King does not pull any punches. His disdain for the character makes me think of similar characters that we've seen before, the blind religious believers who follow without thinking. We've seen them as villains, the Margaret Whites, the Sylvia Pitsons, the Mrs. Carmody's. Here, however, we don't have the shepherd, we only have one of the sheep. And much like Johnny Smith's mother from the Dead Zone, she's pretty pitiful. When you take into account the previous chapter's history lesson on the gullible nature of the town's religious members, Becca is only the latest in a long line of gullible believers. In King's works to this point, nearly every single depiction of a religious person or a holy man has been negative. White, Carmody, Pitson, Sunlight Gardner, Mrs. Smith, Reverend Lester Lowe, Rolling from the Dark Tower is propelled by a religious-like quest. Even Father Callahan is tainted by the end of Salem's Lot. There's only one positive characterization that has been defined by religious beliefs, and that's Mother Abigail. With Becca in King's Crosshairs, he pulls the trigger on this one. This one, more so than the others, is wickedly mean-spirited. Not only does she blindly follow the will of a talking Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ continually mocks her. With so many religious characters depicted in an unflattering or villainous light, it's clear that within his works, King is making a scathing indictment of blind religion. Keep in mind he isn't condemning faith, but the type of faith that's hypocritical, self-serving, and one that doesn't allow for critical or introspective thought. I said earlier that the possession of the townspeople serve as the metaphor for addiction, but it also serves as an equally pointed metaphor for blind worship. The inhabitants of Haven give their lives to a false idol to which they surrender their souls. So final thoughts. All in all, The Tommyknockers is a novel that suffers from identity crisis. From the reader's perspective, it just comes down to preference. King does great work at building up characters only to tear them down right after. Like I said earlier, that's probably where the criticisms of King's overwriting a story began. Do we need hundreds of pages dedicated to tertiary characters just to show the effects of the alien spaceship? Probably not. Does it make the town seem that much richer, more alive? Yeah, of course it does. But for anyone that wants the novel to speed along at a quicker pace, you have every right to complain. It's a heavy book. Like, have, not, not physically heavy, just emotionally heavy, thematically heavy. And that's where I think that it never knew what it wanted to be. You know, I, on one hand, King's tackling weighty issues of the dangers of nuclear-powered facilities, suicide, alcoholism, depression, self-identity, all wrapped up in a novel with battery-powered alien technology and flying tractors. For a novel that has crazy, whacked-out sci-fi elements, the human side is strangely and unnecessarily depressing. With that said, the fact that it doesn't really know what it wants to be, I think that it makes for a really rich reading experience, and this type of crazy is right up my alley. I like the fact that the book is messy. You know, besides the fact that it serves as a window into the life of a writer at that particular moment in time, it creates for a novel that's always unexpected. Because it switches from serious to zany every other page, I never know what I'm going to get next, and I'll always appreciate that type of reading experience. So, what I'm going to do now, I would typically go into the Stephen Kingisms, but what I'm going to do um, is recommended by a um, 
uh, a great review that was um, posted on iTunes um, from a listener that I didn't even think about um, who suggested a separate section alone for the Easter eggs, which is great. So welcome to a brand new section of the Stephen King cast, the Easter eggs. You know, uh, before I had labeled all references and what could be constituted as Easter eggs under the Stephen Kingisms. Um, but it was during the, the, the review, it was, uh, suggested that it be its own section, and I don't know why I ever thought of that before. So thank you for recommending this perfect idea in which I'll examine the little Easter eggs and cameos that King sprinkles through his works, you know, and that will draw a distinct line between the reading experience and the writing experience. So the reading experience will be represented in the Easter eggs and the writing experience will be represented with the Kingisms. So good call, listeners. Thank you. So this book connects to a number of King's works which at first might make you think that they're all operating in the same world. Now, when you look closer at King's works, you realize that there's a multiverse at play. So when looking at a reference, it means that this universe, the events of that novel or story that was referenced could have occurred, but the events referenced in the reference story don't necessarily have to have had occurred. Did that make any sense? It probably didn't make any sense, but hopefully by the end of the Easter eggs, it will have made sense. So. Let's look at what he writes and make some sense of his Easter eggs. On page 41, he references a sun dog, which will later be the title to the novella in Four Past Midnight, which will take place in Castle Rock. Number two, Guard goes on a bender, which takes him to Arcadia Beach, New Hampshire, where he meets Traveling Jack Sawyer. As I stated in the review above, it's a wonderful little scene. And the notable thing about it is that because Jack Sawyer is the only Jack Sawyer in the multiverse, that's our Jack, and not some parallel dimension version of the character. Now, what I mean by that is when we look at the inclusion or shout-out to a character, if you look close enough, you might find that the character or shout-out is not referencing the exact story or character you're familiar with. Like I said above, kind of confusingly. But a great example is looking at Easter egg number three. The Arrowhead Project. Okay, The Arrowhead Project from The Mist is mentioned, a main military installation famous for breaching a hole between dimensions and bringing forth the mist and the monsters within from the novella contained within Skeleton Crew. Because Guard's world is not overrun with leviathans, fogs, and spiders, it means that this Arrowhead project exists on a different universe than the one from the short story contained within Skeleton Crew. Another example of like duplicate worlds, duplicate concepts found from one story to the next, but not necessarily existing um, in the same plane of being can be found in Easter egg number four, Derry, Maine. Derry is the setting of a number of Stephen King's novels that includes Insomnia, Fleetingly Seen in Dreamcatcher, Fair Extension from Full Dark No Stars, The Running Man, 112263, and of course, most famously, with his 1986 magnum opus, It. Speaking of It, at one point, two characters have to travel to Derry, and at one point, one is convinced that he sees a clown in the sewer. Now, I don't believe that this is the same world that we had read about in the pages of It, because by the conclusion of that book, the spider had been killed. Now, yeah, you could say that maybe the spider wasn't killed, which would allow for the Tommyknocker characters to see it, but by the end of it, it was pretty clear that the cycle had been broken. 
Furthermore, Derry suffered major destruction by the end of the book due to the showdown between the losers and the clown. Because of this destruction is not referenced at all in the pages of the Tommyknockers, it leads me to believe that this dairy exists in a different world than the dairy we had read about in it. Number five. And in the end of the novel, the shop comes into Haven. This is our next Easter egg. The shop, of course, is the clandestine government agency that was the antagonist of Firestarter. The events of Firestarter, namely the fact that a little girl burned the installation down to the ground, is referenced. Number six. Um, while in Derry... Ev has a conversation about the Dead Zone's John Smith, which connects the Tommyknockers to the body, Cujo, the Dark Half, Needful Things, and Nightflyer. And because the events of Cujo are referenced in Pet Cemetery, it means that the Tommyknockers take place within that world as well, at least on the surface. Number seven is The Shining, um, which appears in an Easter egg. Uh, this world exists, the, the world of Tommyknockers exists, where there was a movie version of The Shining starring Jack Nicholson, rather than having the events of the Overlook occur within their world. Yet, there's a discrepancy if you look a bit closer. Now, as I stated earlier, Derry is heavily referenced, and then the clown is even spotted. In the novel It, we are given a flashback which features a cameo from Dick Holleran from The Shining, which leads me to believe... Um, and illustrates that the events of it, like I said earlier, um, operate within the same world as The Shining, the book. However, with the reference to the movie The Shining, we have a bit of a contradiction, but at the same time supports my argument uh, that Derry represented here is a different Derry from the one that we'd read about in it. All right? So those are all the... Um, Easter eggs that I found. I'm sure that there's more, but little note here. I, I think that because there were so many Easter eggs in this novel and very fanboyish moments with the return of the shop and Jack Sawyer, I I think this is why I had expected an Avengers-style moment in the back half of the Dark Tower. If King could pluck beloved characters and ideas from his previous works for a novel like the Tommyknockers, then surely he would do for the same for his linchpin of the universe. Sadly, it was not meant to be. Now we have our Stephen Kingisms. So like I said, the Stephen Kingisms will now reflect the writing process of the, the, the tropes of the author, not necessarily the reading experience of references. So the first is animals reacting to a spacecraft. Here it's Peter, it's the dead animals around the spacecraft. Later we're going to see animals reacting to a spacecraft in Dreamcatcher. Number three, bodily reactions from the spacecraft. Um, here we have menstrual flows from the Tommyknockers. Later, we're going to see shit weasels from Dreamcatcher. Uh, we have the assassination of JFK. This is clearly a moment that sticks with King as he sets us in post-assassination assassination 1984 in the drawing of the three and even makes it the impetus for time travel in 1122-63, which will soon be a Hulu, starring, Hulu television event starring James Franco. Um, in this novel, Bobby remembers the assassination of Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, then we have the addict, as I've mentioned at length. Guard is the latest in a line of addicts that includes Father Callahan, Jack Torrance, Eddie Dean, Paul Sheldon, Andy McGee, and that's just the literal physical addictions to substances. That doesn't include um, the obsessive addictions found within Christine and the gunslinger. 
another Stephen Kingism is a character waking up on a beach. Here we see it with Guard on Arcadia Beach, and we've seen it before with the Gunsinger in the Drawing of the Three. Number six is characters growing unnaturally thin through unnatural means. We see it here with Bobby, and we've seen it before in Thinner. Number seven is the prophetic nightmare. It's a staple of King's works. Here we have Guard dreaming of the oncoming dangers of the Tommyknockers. Number eight is inventions fueled by unnatural energy. Here it's the result of the spaceship, and in Revival we see it with Charlie Jacobs' crazy electric obsession. Number nine is thoughts interrupted with parentheses. I haven't mentioned this one in a while because it's so present in pretty much everything he does. I just kind of take it for granted. I mean, do you notice that your lungs are expanding and contracting? No, your lungs just operate. You don't even notice that you're doing that. Same way here. You don't notice that King always has thoughts interrupted with parentheses. Number 10 is the corruption of a small town. Uh, first seen with Salem's Lot, then in Derry, now in Haven. Number 11 is the accident with a tanker truck and a child. Um, of course, there's Pet Cemetery Here, Hilly Brown almost goes sledding right into the path of an oncoming truck. Number 12 is the dome, or the invisible membrane. One thing that I didn't mention yet was that the Tommyknockers took five years to write and publish, beginning in 1982. Six years before that, King had begun writing a novel called The Cannibals, which would be retooled and published decades later as Under the Dome. It's clear that certain images and ideas from Under the Dome are reworked here for the Tommyknockers, the first of which is the dome itself. Here it serves as a physical barrier through which the townsfolk can no longer pass. We also see the effect of um, surgeries affected by the extraterrestrial influence as the pacemaker from Under the Dome and Guard's metal plate here. And in both novels, the death of the police leads to the decline of the town itself. And in the end, both novels are a result of childish aliens indifferent to our concept of morality. Number 13 is Crashing Private Planes. Uh, we have it here. We have it Under the Dome and in Insomnia. Number 14 is Ends in Fire. Um, so many of Stephen King's books end in fire, and here it ends with the greatest forest fire in Maine history. Number 15 is The Pyromaniac. Here we meet Lester, the man who loved fire that would probably have been best friends with the trash can man. And keeping with fire, uh, number 16 specifically is The Shirt Catching on Fire which we see here with Bobby, and we've just seen with 1987's The Drawing of the Three when Jack Mort's shirt gets caught on fire. So, with all of that said, the only thing that I have left will be found on page 458, and I am going to end um, while I still have a voice, and I don't know how it sounds right now, but my throat is hurting. This is the fourth review that I have done today. I've just gone straight through. Um, I have not stopped in hours, and my throat is uh, starting to get to me. Um, so we have our quote. So we're going to start on page 458, and it goes from 458 to 459. This is what I believe the most important quote. Um, or section of the text is. It was well for the people of Haven that the Big Bang never did come. Well for the people of Maine, New England, perhaps for the whole continent or the whole planet. 
I would not be the one to tell you that there are no planets anywhere in the universe that are not large dead cinders floating in space because of war over who was or who was not hogging too many dryers in the local laundromat escalated into Doomsville. No one ever really knows where things will end or if they will. And there had been a time in late June when the entire world might have awakened to discover a terrible, world-dripping conflict was going on in an obscure main town, an exchange, which had begun over something as deeply important as whose turn it had been to pick up the coffee break check at the Haven lunch. Of course, we may blow up our world someday with no outside help at all for reasons which look every bit as trivial from a standpoint of light years, from where we rotate far out on one spoke of the Milky Way in the lesser Magellanic cloud, where whether or not the Russians invade the Iranian oil fields or whether NATO decides to install American-made cruise missiles into West Germany may seem every bit as important as whose turn it is to pick up a tab for five coffees and a like number of Danish. Maybe it all comes down to the same thing when viewed from a galactic perspective. So much of this novel is about the time when it was written and tensions were escalating um, and King, he takes the global conflict and the universal conflict and he just squeezes it down into a small town. So, um, that is all that I've got. Um, again, I feel kind of bad because the beginning is so front-loaded with negativity. Um, so, if anyone didn't finish to the very end, they would walk away thinking that I didn't like it, but I really, really like the Tommy Knockers for both a story, as faulty as it can be, but as a very important collection in Stephen King's works because it tells us so much about what he was going through. And again, I'm glad that he was able to pull himself out of his funk. Ah. Uh. Sorry, I just took a very much needed drink of water. All right, everyone. Um, if you haven't done so already, feel free to write a review um, on iTunes or subscribe to iTunes. I don't know how you listen. I don't know if you go to the Podbean site or go through Stitcher um, or SoundCloud or, or whatever. But if you go through iTunes, that would be greatly appreciated. And if you subscribe and write a review there, it just kind of gets the podcast out more so. Um so that would help me out a lot. And as always, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And um, typically at this time, I would say stay tuned for next week. And I review, um, but I don't know. You know, I have 12 episodes um, already reviewed right now. I don't know where I'm going next. I don't know, guys. I mean, I don't know if I'm going to review the uh, the the um, ABC TV miniseries. I don't know if I want to put myself through that. Um or because I've just started reading the the dark half again, and I maybe I just want to go straight to the dark half. So, regardless, when you uh, tune in next week, there will be a brand new review. I just don't know what it's going to be yet, but make sure that you tune in next week for an episode that will review something by Stephen King. Same King time, same King channel. Stephen King cast.